This is a paid advertisement. Attention metrics are part of the zeitgeist, and for good reason. The industry needs a better quality measure than viewability. According to the IAB, 90% of advertisers plan to use attention metrics this year, so there's a good chance they're on your radar. If you're part of this forward-thinking majority, it's time to familiarize yourself with the Adelaide's AU. Endorsed by Adweek as the attention economy's most widely recognized metric, AU is available in nearly every DSP, SSP, and ad network. Learn more at adelaidemetrics.com. That's adelaidemetrics.com. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi and our special guest, Ann Coughlin, the co-founder and COO of Scope3. Ann, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. First, some housekeeping. So uh, we have a great interview on Architecture TV with Frost from Simplify, a really interesting view into his business. They have 140,000 line items running at any time, which is just mind-boggling to me. Also on Justify Your Existence this week, Vibe, which is a video self-service video company, is also super interesting. You could put your ads on TV for $50. And lastly, Justify Your Existence is open for startups. So if you are a pre-A round ad tech startup or MarTech startup, uh, you can get on Justify Your Existence. It's very low stress. There's no cost involved. Just slide into my DMs and you will be on the show. So nice and easy. All right, let's jump in. So and thank you for being here. You know, Brian O'Kelly was actually the first Marketecture interview. It was on our homepage for many months, uh, talking about Scope 3 when it was really early. He's also the only person to ever sneak a slide into our interview. We have a no presentation policy, and he just started presenting without asking. So that's that tells you something. Um, <laughs> so what? Uh, <laughs> so a lot's been happening. A picture tells a thousand words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you don't think of Brian as a real presenter, but he just jumped right in there. So uh, lots been happening. You raised $20 million. Tell us what's the current state of Scope 3. Well, I think the current state of Scope 3 really is against the backdrop of the world. <laughs> it sounds quite lofty. But, you know, in the last 18 months, we've seen real significant climate challenges. I don't think wherever you're listening to this podcast today, you need me to tell you that over the summer, over the last few months, we've seen real damaging consequences of the climate crisis. And we're now oscillating around that 1.5 degrees of pre-industrial level growth in the temperature of the planet. And this has kind of sharpened the focus, I think, of a lot of people in their personal lives and translating into their day-to-day -day business lives of, oh God, what can I do here to mitigate this in any way that I can. So in the last 18 months, uh, we've moved from having an idea and seeing sustainability as almost like a, a fringe interest by many individuals within the attic ecosystem into something that's front and center of the strategies of many companies. Um, and we know that, for example, 7.2 million metric tons of carbon emissions are being contributed by the digital advertising ecosystem. So we actually have numbers now that show why this is a problem and why we actually need to be doing something about it. At Scope 3, I think kind of three main things that have been a consequence of these two shifts have been the um, ability for us to really start to scale out our business. So people going from being interested in the problem of sustainability to wanting actually to take action and wanting to find a partner to be able to do that. Um, and I can go into 
many ways that we've been doing that over the last <laughs> 18 months. Go through that number again, 7.2 million 7.2 million metric tons per year. Okay. So the US specifically, if you take a portion of that, it's between a third and a half of that. That's the equivalent to Switzerland powering all of their homes, heat and electricity in a year. So the digital advertising ecosystem is a contributing factor to the carbon emissions of the planet. I don't and, think and that, anyone is pretending that it, that's huge, but it, it's pretty significant. It's an order of magnitude less than like aviation or coal mining, but it's still Switzerland. Exactly. Could you actually contextualize that against some of those other industries? Like, where does it rank? Do you, have, have you ever done that, that work and like looked at the data? Yeah, there's lots of stats out there. It's quite interesting. I think one stat I saw was that the internet overall is about 4% of the entire output of the world. And then aviation hovers at around 2% of total. That digital advertising is less than 1%. So it's significantly smaller. I think people try and beef up the numbers sometimes. They say advertising is 4%. It's like, well, advertising is not the entirety of the internet. Um, and so I think there is a little bit of hyperbole in statistics. But that being said, it's definitely significantly more than, than people tend to think, especially when comparing with something like print advertising. Eric, you could maybe jog my memory. We had another guest on the show, but I can't remember who it was, who said that advertising was like 25% of the internet in terms of... Uh, Amy. Oh, that was Amy. So we had Amy Williams from Good Loop on, uh, who uh, is sort of a competitor to Scope 3. But, you know, I think if you solve the climate crisis, we can get over any competitive rivalry. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think really all of these stats just go to point to the fact that there is a problem. But where there's a problem, there is hopefully a solution. And where we see the responsibility of carbon emissions in digital advertising, there are ways of easily reducing those carbon emissions. It's not like, you know, if you're a manufacturing company and you're trying to work out how to reduce your emissions from shipping cargo across the world and then, you know, tinkering with how you actually make production cycles more efficient within your factories, that's going to take two, three years. And those two, three years are uh, what we don't have. I think we all know that in the digital advertising ecosystem, there's lots of configurations and things that you can do with servers and just even with how you're setting up your campaigns that can actually significantly reduce the impact quicker and faster. Right. That's what I was about to dive into. So where where is the carbon being burned? Is it or, or used? Is it data centers primarily? It's primarily data centers. So if you think about the modeling of a supply chain of an ad. And I think this is maybe where Brian showed an an image last year, because this is the way that we think about dividing the emissions up when we think about the life cycle of an ad. You have the production of the ad itself. So how was the creative actually made? Were people flown to a shoot in South Africa to make a toothpaste commercial? You know, what was the (laughs) catering emissions cost of that? There's a, a side conversation that we can have about AI there. And then there is actually the the distribution and the production and the consumer consumption of the ad in the selection process. So if I'm choosing to buy an ad on the New York Times or a digital out-of-home billboard, what is the decision-making process and how many companies are involved in that chain to get the ad to actually be delivered? 
in the programmatic ecosystem, uh, which is where I grew up, uh, I guess you can say, we know that there are thousands and thousands of companies in this bloated supply chain that all contribute a tiny little bit of computing power. So yeah, you're right, it's servers and the tiny amount of computing power, as well as you know the, the amount of electricity that's needed to actually cool down the servers right. in the rooms that they, they live in, all adds up. And so to being able to model that and then being able to understand, okay, where is the ad being actually served? Is it being served on my phone? Is it being served on a TV? Is it being served on an out-of-home billboard somewhere? What are the emissions associated to that ad as well? Right. So, so you, you care about the electricity my um, my laptop is using to run a video ad. Yeah. And what's great about so much of the data that we can use is that it is updated pretty regularly. So there are a number of companies that provide grid mix data, it's called. So if you're in the US, in Vermont or in West Virginia, the makeup of the grid is very different. One is using significantly more clean energy than the other, and that changes as well on a day-to-day basis. So France stays pretty steady because they're nuclear. Um, The UK, we have a a range, I'm in the UK, so we have a range of um, different renewable energy sources, and that changes on a day-to-day basis. So being able to model that, that granularity as well is really important when it comes to starting to understand how you can actually make decisions against that after you've actually done your initial measurement. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating, geotargeting turning into different carbon footprints. So I guess the big question, first I want to ask about the fundraise. So uh, you raised $20 million. I have never had as many people reach out to me saying, should I work at this company? I've got a job offer. A recruiter's coming after me. Uh, You're hiring everyone in ad tech, essentially. So what is that accurate? I mean, a lot of open positions. Should people call you, slip into your DMs? They could slip into my DMs for sure. I think we have 10 open roles on the website at the moment. And yeah, a lot of the money will be spent on continuing to hire. We've had a global presence really since day one. So Brian's in the US, I'm in London. Engineering co-founders also in the US. We hired in Australia, I think on in month seven. So our weekly all hands became very difficult to work out the best time to do that. And we're at 38 people right now globally. Uh, We have people in France, we've got people in Canada, in the US, Sydney, the UK. So really spread. And I say we are definitely hiring in ad tech. We're also hiring not from ad tech as well. Is the fundamental problem the engineering of measuring the carbon? Or is the fundamental problem the sales of getting people in agencies and marketers to care? Am I allowed to say both? Um, Well, which are you hiring for faster, (laughs) I guess would be the question. I think we're hiring for uh, faster on the commercial side because we are you know, struggling to keep up with demand. We see, you know, at the brand level, real recognition that sustainability is not just a problem in and of itself that rolls up into corporate targets and responsibilities. There's reporting coming out like the CSRD in, in Europe and even more stringent reporting requirements for companies in the US, there's, you know, a need to make sure that you're meeting your net zero targets as a company. And so there's kind of a a look across all different departments. Marketing is one of them. The marketing department's like, oh gosh, how am I going to solve this problem? What can I do? So we're seeing a lot of inbound across the ecosystem of like, how can we help brands to create a sustainability strategy 
make sure that what they're deciding, kind of like the policies that they're putting in place to reduce their carbon emissions can translate into the marketing departments. Uh, And so we're really seeing the need to have people to be able to do that on the ground. Have you done the work to really dig into, you know, validating this idea that I think makes intuitive sense, which is, you know, if like we make the supply chain more efficient, results will go up, right? Like, have you done the work to really understand that and come up with any interesting findings and recommendations to brands? Yes. So we were actually asked that exact question by the WFA about a year ago. And we said, help us to to prove that out, or at least test the hypothesis that worst case scenario, improving the carbon footprint of a campaign does nothing to performance. So it's like, no brainer, we should just do this anyway. So we ran these pilots with five brands. We saw in every case that performance stayed flat or improved. And we've been doing that a lot with many of our channel partners, Sanofi, as part of the WFA pilot, we saw a significant reduction, I think 50, over 50% reduction in carbon emissions with no impact to performance. Audi ran a case study with Adform where they saw, again, around the 50% reduction in carbon emissions, but like something crazy, like over 60, I think 65% of their the KPI that they were tracking improved. So we're seeing this kind of again and again. And it does make intuitive sense because we see where there is complexity in a supply chain, there is waste. And I think you could have waste with multiple definitions. So emissions waste, empty carbon that isn't doing anything. Waste from a, from a performance perspective where maybe the, the metrics are manufactured and when you're looking at actual real sales data, you're seeing that actually it's you know a made-for-advertising website that's great at pretending that you're clicking and you, you get high viewability, but it's not actually doing anything. And so we've seen that on the brand side but we've also seen it on the publisher side as well. So the hypothesis there would be, does streamlining my supply chain improve carbon and not impact revenue or potentially actually increase my revenue because this is a marketplace after all and brands are increasingly searching for partners that have aligned sustainability goals and are reducing their carbon to stay on plan. And so we've done some work. Um, we did some work with Future, who's a UK publisher. They've got magazines like uh, Marie Claire. They reduce their emissions on a kind of per impression basis by over 70% by streamlining partners, prioritizing direct over reselling, simplifying their header bidding. Similarly, Insider in a quarter reduced their emissions by 20%. So we're seeing on both sides of the ecosystem time and time again, these kind of sustained reduction at worst, no impact to performance at best, you know, significant at performance or revenue uh, impact. Right. Because it's all correlated. You have carbon usage is correlated with complexity, which is correlated with latency and clutter. And so they all push in the same direction. I mentioned earlier, people have been reaching out to me about job opportunities and they're always asked kind of the same questions. So I'm going to ask you the questions they ask me. How do you know that any of the numbers you produce are accurate and the corollary doesn't matter if they're accurate or not? So, yes, it does matter that they're accurate. I'll answer the second half of that part before I answer the first question first. Um, How do we know that it's accurate? So we really care about making sure that 
what our model outputs. So it's still an estimation, right? Anyone tells you like we have the actual carbon numbers from on high, that this is the actual amount of carbon, that's wrong. Because the only way that you can tell the carbon emissions is to go up a mountain in Hawaii and see how many parts per million of carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere. And that's not being broken down by... By by (laughs) being a line item, no. Um, Exactly, exactly. That's not there. So what we can do is uh, promise to be um, striving for the best estimate, which is how all scientific and methodologies work when you're modeling. And we open sourced our methodology over a year ago now. We've had pull requests and simple emails uh, sent to us asking us, you know, oh, by the way, you've used this scientific paper on power draw that's slightly old. So I think when you're estimating the power that a, a laptop generates versus the power that a PC generates, you're using kind of potentially a model that's out of date or there's something that's being approved. So I think we have kind of the the ability to have rigor put on ourselves as well as what we hold you know, true internally to make sure that we're always questioning, always checking the numbers. And then our model improves as we work with partners. And so if you think about how we would model the emissions of a an ad tech platform, an SSP or a DSP, or how we would model the emissions of a publisher, every time we get specific data from these that will help us model essentially their own contribution to the supply chain. So I think we could always improve our model. We have an engineering team working to not only expand the breadth of what we cover from a channel perspective, but also the depth of how deep we can go, how granular we can be. And we kind of essentially have been inviting people uh, for the last year and over a year as we've open source to help us improve. All right. So the second uh, thing that I hear, and you you really alluded to this earlier when you talked about the photo shoots in South Africa and things like that. It feels, I think, that a lot of the work of Scope 3 has been very publisher-centric about this site has this much carbon, et cetera. But the buy side with their complex ads, their video, their targeting, also causes quite a bit of carbon usage. So um, is, that a, is that part of your roadmap? Is that uh, to, to capture the buy side as well? Yes, absolutely. So we actually have just um, started to build out our roadmap for how we can help the industry measure the emissions of creative production. It's a very different world. It's a very different type of people that we're talking to at the agency, right? We're talking about, we're talking to the creatives, not just the the media portion of an agency. Um, We've hired uh, Gabby Kay, who is one of, was one of the founders of Green the Bid, has extensive knowledge in creative production, as well as uh, sustainability for the last few years. And so she's kind of leading and driving that effort so that we'll be able to provide measurement for that as well, going forward. Are we going to screw this all up with AI? It's a great question. I think... I certainly have, you know, we know the anecdotal evidence and we, you know, again, it's intuition, right? That the servers that are powering AI computations and calculations are going to be in the same space as, you know, using up a significant amount of electricity to get something done. You know, we have, we use tools like Zoom and Loom internally, and there's just a nice little button that says, turn on the AI and everything will be okay. And you'll pay a little bit more or a lot more in some cases 
and uh, everything will be a lot easier for you. But when we're doing our own company, corporate carbon accounting doesn't break out the emissions that are increasing by virtue of the fact that I'm clicking on that button. And I think that translates into making the need to be making decisions about technology with the environment in mind. So one of the things we'll be looking at as we look at creative production is what is the uh, trade-off between, you know, having a AI shoot in someone's, you know, warehouse downtown where, you know, you essentially don't have to really go anywhere and you can go home at the end of the day versus, you know, flying to the other side of the world and um, actually shooting that commercial on a beach somewhere nice. So I think, um, yes, AI has the the power to be extremely carbon intensive. And my question would be, what is your trade-off there? What are you not doing because you're using AI? Um, this is a little bit random, but um, one of my favorite architecture interviews was with Viant. And uh, what they were doing for their carbon capture was that they just bought a swamp in uh, North Carolina. So they're vertically integrated DSP, including the servers as well as the carbon offsets. Um, so I thought that was a pretty unique little approach to the problem. I think Hearst has a, Hearst has a forest. Right. <laughs> it's very bizarre. Um, all right. So I have to ask. Uh, so you are working with Brian O'Kelly for the second time voluntarily. And, you know, I worked for him the third, third time. Okay. Third time. Uh, I, okay. I did two years under Mr. O'Kelly, and I can't say it was the best two years of my career. Uh, <laughs> I think PTSD is a phrase I've used occasionally. He and I are friendly now, but um, it wasn't always so great. So what's, uh, what do you have to say to the audience? Why, uh, why did you choose to do this? Uh, how's it going? I actually can't imagine not working with Brian. When I started working at AppNexus in 2014, he was definitely Bok, right? The CEO, I think I, I, I was in London, I saw him on stage on a screen for, you know, the first three plus years of my time at AppNexus. And then the first time I actually ever met Brian, he interviewed me for a product job. So it's an internal move. And I remember that interview, it was in a room called Dr. No which was always scary in and of itself. It's an interview room that says no on the, on the door. Um, and I remember feeling for the first half of that interview, extremely uncomfortable. You're being interviewed by the CEO. And the second half of that interview, I kind of took the advice of like, forget he's the CEO and let's brainstorm some ideas. And it was really challenging, but really fun. And actually, I have found that to be the way that I work with Brian and have worked with Brian more and more closely over the years. I think from founding, even in the last two years, founding Scope 3, I think what I love about working with Brian is that he is probably the most curious person I know. That extends to um, you know him sending me, and we send each other articles. I try and do my fair share of returning the favor articles that could be completely seemingly irrelevant to scope three, our mission, how we want to show up as leaders, how we want to build this company together, what it means to, you know, create a place that people want to work. To the extent that I've had to, you know, sign up to random US sports publishers that I will never go on again just to read this article and then discover the nugget, you know, in paragraph 75 of this article. So he's extremely curious. 
I think he's ex- he's extremely um, fast. So the speed of Brian's brain is unparalleled. And I think sometimes it's difficult to keep up with that or to yourself connect the dots with this is what we were talking about yesterday and this is what we're talking about today. And like these are all the thoughts that happened in between to get us between these two conversations. But the thing I like personally like the best about working with Brian is the kind of open dialogue of feedback that we have for each other. So working both ways and making sure that the intention is right in the feedback and that we can both kind of grow and learn and try and make scope three the best place for people to work and solving, you know, hopefully the problems that will redefine and reimagine the ecosystem in the next few years. So he's never thrown a stapler at you? No, and I can't imagine him actually doing that. It's really strange. This The stapler thing is actually kind of funny because uh, there was this like hit piece article about him in Business Insider many years ago. It was pretty negative. Um, and, uh, and one of the anecdotes was they threw a stapler at somebody and that was the only thing that got him upset. And he was just like, I did not throw a stapler at anybody. That is bullshit. I, no stapler. And then I went around to the other employees. They're like, oh, yeah, it almost hit my head. It totally happened. <laughs> so this is this is so strange because so my dad was a secondary school teacher. And it was very similar thing happened where someone said that he threw a like an eraser, like a board eraser. And my dad was like adamant that that had never happened i think he like put it on the floor or you know bounce or something and um, but anyway i would never i always think that brian is and i've seen it actually just now i just came from a meeting where we were looking at 2024 planning and the whole way that he ran the meeting was to try and make people think bigger make people excited about the future and improve the company and the way we're doing so i only have good things to say about brian i want to close and just say i think he he has some amazing amazing leadership qualities and really built something amazing at Nexus. i'm just giving him a little bit of a hard time because i assume he's listening all right let's take a quick <laughs> break and do the news of the week this is a message from our sponsor i'd like to introduce you to publica by ias the award-winning ctv ad server trusted by some of the biggest streaming services and smart tv manufacturers globally Publica helps a growing number of leading AVOD and FAST services to power the programmatic ad break decisioning via products, including a unified auction, server-side ad insertion, and a demand-agnostic ad server built from the ground up around streaming. Head to getpublica.com to find out how they help CTV publishers to grow their advertising revenues and provide streaming audiences with linear-like TV ad break experiences. All right, we're back. So we we were off for Thanksgiving. I hope everyone enjoyed talking to their family about ad tech. Um, so we, a lot of news. There's a lot of news this week. Um, I, I think some juicy stuff. Let's start with my favorite, which is uh, Simul Media is suing OpenX, or at least threatening to sue OpenX over a trademark dispute because OpenX just launched a product called TV Plus. And Dave Morgan at Simul Media uh, is saying he's been using TV Plus for many years, and he even warned OpenX not to use it multiple times, and they used it anyway. I'm not sure we have a lot of commentary on this, but it's kind of it's like the kids are fighting. It was kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I have unfortunate experience with uh, disputes like this, and what you don't want to do is have this go to court. 
because then all of a sudden the costs go from, you know, uh, $1,000 for the letter that, you know, you, you might have seen posted on the website to, you know, very quickly, like five to six figures. So I interpret this as, you know, like the, the last step after there's been a lot of back and forth with no movement before this thing goes to uh, court. And I don't think either of those companies want to spend that money to make it happen. The, the big thing, and I always tell founders this actually at day zero, like spend the money because not a lot of money, spend the money to do a proper trademark search. Number one, for your company name. But then number two, if there's key products, if there's like something that's going to be really, really important to launch, like just spend the money on trademark search. This happens like more often than you'd realize. It just never sort of gets aired out publicly. And I think this is probably a strategic maneuver to uh, to avoid the uh, potential for litigation, which can get super expensive, costly, and drain executive. Uh, yeah, totally. There was also a dispute with um, Identity Link, Live Ramp Identity Link. I think someone else claimed. I don't know how they resolved that, but that was kind of a fun one from a year or two ago. Other news. So our friends at Adalytics, we had Christoph on like four months ago to talk about the YouTube report he came out with. Uh, it was one of our most popular episodes. He has a new report showing search ads from Google are showing on bad sites. And I will uh, quote the Adweek article that said the report found more than 36,000 websites in, in the Google search partner network eligible for advertising, 390 of which, 390 of the 36,000 were pornographic. And there were four websites belonging to entities sanctioned by the U.S. government. Uh, and Adelix found more than 2,200 domains in the search partner network that seem to violate copyright laws. This seems to keep happening to different products that Google and other people use to extend their reach to try to drive more revenue beyond their own unoperated properties where they can have a certain level of quality. I don't know. Anne, do you want to comment on that? Any thoughts? Yeah, well, I think it's definitely worrying if you're a brand and you're potentially up for litigation where you know there are sanctions against a country and you're serving inventory there i think it kind of speaks a little bit to an overall strategy of inclusion versus exclusion and your inability to do that on some of these google products if you read the analytics report they say we like explicitly said that we did not want to serve on Breitbart, why can that not extend to the you know search network, the what we're doing? And so I think there's definite questions here for understanding why, if you're a brand and you're putting these policies in place, why platforms are particularly Google finding it difficult to help brands adhere to those. Search syndication is a dirty subject and has been since the 90s. If you're a ordinary consumer, you think there's only two search engines, you know, Bing and Google, maybe DuckDuckGo third. But these companies syndicate their search results to many other sites, including legitimate sites like, you know, Yahoo uses, I think, Google search, but also pretty crappy sites where you search and they show search results, AdWords type search results. And there's some really bad stuff that happens in the whole process. And it's very high margin for everyone involved. So there's an incentive to keep doing it. Yeah, I think the... um the margin is 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 interesting because I saw there was um the guy that always uh, has the responsibility of like responding to this Dan Taylor um he's a Google guy on on Twitter basically he said you know we need to provide you know search functionality to the world so we make uh, the ability to put a Google search box like available to everyone and basically what he said was any ad revenue that was generated through these search results was not shared with the publisher because that's not how it works. It's still bad placements. I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying like, 
because it gets back to margin, right? Like the you know the money wasn't shared with the publisher, which I think what was one of the concerns, frankly, you know, the right concern if it's funding hate and porn and everything like that. So that was that was the response there, and I can I can imagine it being somewhat plausible. Yeah, that that changes it a bunch. Uh, interesting where that'll end up in terms of what we find out. Another interesting article. So Jay Friedman, who's sort of a friend of the pod, he wrote an interesting, provocative article uh, about Amazon partnering with Meta and Snap and how important that is because social commerce is kind of taking off. Influencers are becoming incredibly important to commerce. And he contrasted it with T-commerce, meaning television commerce, which he was pretty negative on and says is not really doing much for the trade desk or Walmart or other people who are investing in that. You're shaking your head, Eric, so I'm calling on you. What, 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 did you read Jay's article? What do you think about it? I did. It, it was awesome. I mean, it was, it was fresh thinking um, and no, uh, no, no surprise from, from Jay. I thought uh, uh, the other side of this is also interesting in that it makes Snap and Meta Properties, which are the, the partners in this program, yeah, that much more stickier for commerce. Like you can now pay with Amazon Pay when you're buying a product on Instagram or you're buying a product on Snap, which is a great user experience. Like it's literally one click, you're going to be buying a lot more. So I think um, A, you know, it sort of like cements this whole idea that, you know, social commerce is going to be that much more important and just like, you know, less friction than, than T-commerce or TV commerce. But then number two, there's got to be some way that Snap and Meta are benefiting from this from a data perspective, which, you know, allows them to, I think, continue to have a lead around um, data in an age where cookies and IDFA, all that stuff is is going away. So I thought it's bi-directionally, like very, very interesting. And everybody should read Jay's piece because it's awesome. If we had show notes, we'd put we'd put it in the show notes. <laughs> I think I'm going to try a new type of show note where I'm going to retweet from the uh, Markitecture Twitter account or X account. And that, so if you follow Markitecture, you'll get that. I volunteer to do the show notes. If you just give me access to the CMS, I'll do the freaking show notes. And we have an issue with my laziness preventing show notes from happening. Uh, <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so another friend of the pod, uh, the Arena Group, which owns Sports Illustrated. We have a guest coming up in the next couple of weeks from Arena. But they were caught. Uh, caught is an interesting word here. They were. It was found out that there was a lot of really low quality AI generated content on Sports Illustrated, and not only was it bad content, the authors were fake too. The authors had been created by AI. Peter Kafka, in a sort of related article, called this the tsunami of crap, which I thought was like a pretty good phrase as sort of what one of the negative implications of AI is. In the defense of the Arena Group, they claim that this was just an outsourced partner for their commerce. It wasn't It wasn't supposed to be news. It wasn't supposed to be content. It was just sort of like search engine spam to get commerce. I don't know if that makes it much better. This also affects carbon in a sense, like this kind of wasteful production of content and, and search engine garbage. It's all negative on the carbon front. So, Anne, I, am I reading that the right way? Do you think this is part of the scope of Scope 3? Yeah, absolutely. And this kind of ties to, in a way, and I'm not saying that this arena group is part of this, but the proliferation of made for advertising sites. We see that, you know, we, we released a study with Ubiquity last year that said that, you know, on average, an MFA site had 26% higher carbon than one that didn't. That's a lot. And if that's part of your media 
budget and you're accidentally spending money on these MFA sites, then you're also having negative consequences for carbon. And so I think, you know, based on how those sites are often created and generated, there's this really connected issue with AI. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's just going to exacerbate a lot of the problems that we're looking to solve. But then on the other side of it, Pandora's box is open. These tools are widely available. And if used correctly, I think they're probably going to be of benefit to publishers, to brands, to everyone in the ecosystem. So we're in this like messy early stage of trying to figure this thing out. I think it's going to be more mess rather than less. There was a another article. There's a bunch of stuff happening with AI this week, but another one that got posted, I put in the show notes that we'll, we'll, no one will ever see. Um, it actually came from the New York Post, believe it or not. So they found uh, an AI influencer that was created by an AI influencer agency. So there's no humans right involved in, in, in this stuff that was making um, something like 10 grand or 11 grand per month on brand deals. So it was uh, you know basically a, an image of a young female. They created a persona. She has social accounts and she's doing brand deals. And this is pure margin, right? Like Because nothing is being shared with a human. Theoretically, like they can use AI to make these images better and better. They can do exactly what the brand wants. So it's like the cat's out of the bag on all of this. Um, and we're in a weird place where I think it's going to get even weirder before we can figure out how to, you know, wrap our collective arms around it. What's the AI spend the money on? What does the AI spend the money on? You said there's AI generated. No, no, AI. no, no. So I want to know what Brands, the AI is doing with the eleven thousand dollars. It's month. going directly to this AI agency that's creating AI influencers. That's too meta for me. Um, okay, so the last subject. <laughs> uh, so those of you who follow me on Twitter, which I assume is 100% <laughs> of the listenership of this podcast, because why else would you listen to this, is my obsession with this tiny little company no one cares about called Kubiant. Um, this has been a multi-year obsession of mine. It's my white whale, so I will just give an update here. Uh, and I actually did some reporting on this. Like, I made phone calls and stuff. Um, so that's my next step into my journalist career. So the backstory here is that Kubian is a very small ad tech company that's been public on NASDAQ for several years. And when you read their S1, when you read their 10Ks, what they say their business is makes zero sense. They say things like, hey, we use AI to buy ads in a way no one else can and, you know, programmatic and don't look here. And we made $100,000 in revenue this quarter. Don't worry about it. Buy our stock is more or less their pitch. So I've been following this for a long time. It makes no sense at all. And then I found out that the founder actually stiffed me at Wax for a bill. So, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you know, if someone doesn't pay their bill and goes out of business, like you have a grudge against them forever. And this was not a lot of money. It was like $500 still. Like, <laughs> so I've been on this. The mystery is <laughs> that in May of this year, they announced a merger with another ad tech company called Adomni. I spoke to the CEO of Abdomni this week. It's actually an interesting company. It's not a fly-by-night company as far as I know. Uh, it's Las Vegas-based, digital out-of-home DSP pretty sizable company based in Vegas. Anyway, so they announced this merger with Adomni, which is obviously a reverse merger because Kubian has no value at all. And so Adomni is going to go public. And now we're sitting here in November, hasn't happened. And Kubian just got delisted from NASDAQ. And I don't know if the deal's not going to happen, but it doesn't appear the deal's going to happen. So I did some digging in all, this, in all the filings. And here's a quick... Quickly, what happened between May and now, which is in September, Kubian's auditor resigned and withdrew all the previous audits from the company. Shortly thereafter, they named a different person, Elizabeth DeMars, I don't know her personally, as the interim CEO. And the uh, the CEO, Paul Roberts, the guy who stiffed me, um, stepped down. 
Then they did a 35% reduction in force in October. Then the CEO, Paul Roberts, officially resigned as CEO and Elizabeth became uh, continued as interim. And then November 15th, they were delisted from the NASDAQ. And now they're sitting there with their stock price at like, you know, a fraction of a penny. So what goes around comes around. Pay your bills. And I appreciate your indulgence of, of me on my pet project. <laughs> All right. That was very, very impressive. Like really impressive. Um, when the auditor steps down, that that ain't good. That's that's like that's really bad. Um, related, there was this article that went around where there was a, a CMO that uh, had this scheme where he was having uh, vendors pay accounts that were personal, like he, he owned, and apparently he embezzled ten million dollars from his employer and then spent the money on a yacht. Of Mercedes, international travel, I think a plane, like $10 million, just like, you know, spent it and balled out. Um, and then they caught him. So auditors need to be involved on this stuff. Is the <laughs> it's, it's really easy to steal money in the marketing chain. The problem is you, you almost always get caught, but it's really easy to steal. There was a, I won't say the name because it was never publicly reported, but there was a big sort of agency group where a lot of money was stolen in the TV world. Everyone probably knows who I'm talking about. Uh, and th that never really came to light because they, it was too embarrassing. And there have been a number of these sort of cases, but you, you ultimately get caught because they're, they're going to figure out the money's not there. Yeah, and not, not saying that Kuvian was involved in, in any illicit activity or anything like that. Um, just uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of weird news this week around uh, financial controls, to say the least. All right. I, I think that's a great place to stop. Uh, <laughs> so... And uh, from Scope 3, thank you so much for being here. This was a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.